Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As our eyes are firmly set upon Christ's saving work upon the cross, it behooves us to start at the very beginning, to ask ourselves why this was necessary in the first place. Why was it necessary for the Son of God to leave behind the blessed presence of his Father in heaven, take on our human flesh, be reckoned as a sinner, suffer and die and rise again for our justification? Why did this ever need to happen in the first place? And so we read today of how Adam and Eve, our first parents, fell from the blessedness of paradise into the wretched condition of sin, death, and corruption that besets all of their children to this very day. All of it begins with the devil himself taking on the form of a serpent there in the garden and leveling his greatest weapon in the battle against God and his word, namely, temptation. Every good thing that Adam and Eve could ever have wanted was right there. Every treasure of Eden was available to them. All of the verdant valleys that were nourished by those four great rivers in that place, a land of gold and precious stones, fruit always yielding in its season, and a promise from God that every need of theirs should be richly supplied by his grace that all things were under their feet, that they, made in his image, were the crowning jewel of his creation and destined to live under him in blessedness and righteousness. But the devil wanted none of that. His own pride, and dare I say, his own envy of humanity got the better of him, 
and even the anointed cherub, the one whom God himself reckons as the most beautiful of his angels, sought to destroy the goodness of what his master had created. And really, the devil only had one little trick. Not a particularly grandiose gambit at that. Simply doubt. Did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree that is in the midst of the garden? No, Eve replies, we may eat of everything. Every good gift that God has given is ours to partake of. Only he has said that we should not eat of this single tree, lest in eating it we should die. You will not surely die, the devil replies, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The devil's attack was fundamentally directed at God's own word to instill in Eve doubt that though God had promised them good things, though he had set before them all the riches and pleasures of Eden, even though he had promised them an eternity of blessedness in his presence, the devil wanted her to believe that that was a lie. That there was something better than what God had to offer. And that she could see for herself what was right. That she, by partaking of this fruit, would become a god unto herself. She would chart her own destiny. She would know what is good for herself. She would decide what is good and what is evil and what is beneficial. And the saddest thing is, it worked. Depressingly easily so, I might add. One would think that Adam and Eve, created as they were in perfect innocence, created having an innate knowledge of God as their creator and knowing his will for them, would be the best people in any situation to resist such a meager attempt to undermine their confidence in God's word, and even if we discard that, we have all of the evidence to the contrary that was right before them. All of the trees which they had tasted of already. All of the sweet fruits of the earth that they had been given. And yet, they fell. The fruit seemed good to the woman good for food, a delight to the eyes, desired to make one wise. So she took of that fruit and ate, and her husband, despite seemingly having been there the whole time, seemed himself to not have any scruples about the matter either. And unfortunately, they got exactly what the devil promised them. They now knew good and evil. Not as God knows good and evil, 
For God has no part of evil, but he understands what it is in that it is what is contrary to his good and gracious will. No, Adam and Eve no longer knew good and evil in that sense. They know good and evil because now they are participants in evil. They are participants in that which is contrary to God's word and his ways. And right away, no sooner have they tasted of that fruit, no sooner have they licked the sugar from their lips than their eyes are opened and they realize that they are deserving of death. That the presence of the Lord is no longer a blessing to them. No longer something that they should seek and run to, but something that they should run from and hide themselves from as best they can. That they should grab whatever they can to cover over themselves in the hope that the Lord will not find them. So it is with all of their children. Gone are the days when we are born in the perfect innocence which God created us. Gone are the days when we had no need for shame. Gone are the days when evil was just a word that meant nothing to us. But now evil is the very reality into which we are born. It is the inescapable corruption that clings to all of us. And I'm sure that at that moment, the devil must have been the happiest he's ever been. It worked. He got what he wanted. He had won. And how much more elated must he have been over the years when he discovered that that simple ploy that he had used in the garden still works. That all along the path, as the sons of Adam and Eve were born, he found it just as easy to lead them into temptation as their parents. All he has to do is undermine. All he has to do is give the promise of something better. And our hearts will do the rest. Indeed, in all the years since that time in Eden, the devil has not learned any new tricks. And why would he? The one trick he knows works so well. All of the issues that beset us in any given day, all of the temptations to sin, all of these are born of a fundamental doubting that what God has said is true. And the devil would stoke that doubt wherever he can. Did God truly say, male and female created he them? Did God truly say, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder? Did God truly say, before you were born, I knew you, and from the womb, I consecrated you? Did God truly say, share your bread with the hungry and bind up the wounds of the poor and the distressed? Did God really say, take up your cross, deny yourselves, and follow me? Did God really say, surrender everything in this world, only remain faithful to me even unto death? Surely he did. One only needs to 
pick up the pages of this book and read that God has truly said these things. The problem isn't any doubt about the existence of the words themselves, but rather that we know God has said these things, but we do not like it. We have any number of ideas about what is good for us, what is beneficial and profitable for us, what makes one wise in the eyes of the world. And if God agrees with us, then we are happy to let him agree, but in the end, our hearts desire God's throne for themselves. They desire to be the ones that determine what is right, what is good, and any word to the contrary, it will find its way out from under. And if it was depressingly easy for the devil to lure even our first parents, innocent as they were, into this folly, then I dare say in the time since, it has become entirely effortless. And I can also imagine that after so many years of success with this program, the devil, when he finally came upon Jesus in the wilderness, thought, one more victory for the scoreboard. It had worked all the other times before, so why should it not work now? But he finds in Jesus someone quite different from all the rest. He finds someone who succeeds where our parents failed and where we have failed. One who, though he is beset by every temptation that the world has to offer, yet is without sin. One who prizes the will of his Father in heaven above all things. One who, when beset with the devil's temptation, does not wander off into his own desires, but rather remains firm in the word. For every temptation that the devil would offer him, Jesus bears not his own understanding, even though he, of all people who has ever existed, would be the one most qualified to do so. But even the Son of God leaned on what the scriptures said. You shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. For Jesus, who is the very word of God incarnate, there is no other weapon in the fight against the devil than the very word itself. And we do well to take this lesson to heart. For indeed, of ourselves, there is no hope that we should ever conquer the devil. Deep guile and great might are his dread arms in fight, as we just sang. We of ourselves are nothing. There is no weapon in our own arsenal that can ever fell the great dragon, the serpent who destroyed the world. Save the word of Christ, which he has put in our hearts. And so I would therefore offer you this encouragement. 
Now is the time to deeply be involved in the Word, to make it a daily study, to read it in large portion, to commit large sections of it to memory, a discipline that we all do well to participate in, one that we should all pursue with all of our zeal and with all of our strength. Begin at the first page, read to the last, and as soon as you have done that, close the book, turn it over, and start again. For the times very well may be coming when we don't have the paper in front of us. It seems as if year by year, day by day, the devil roars louder and takes greater sway over this world. We should not be so foolish to think that we have mastered combat in the spiritual world yet. Indeed, we are always learning. And there is no better thing we can do than to stock up on the word which is our only weapon in this fight. But even here, we must also not make the mistake of thinking that we are the ones who do battle. For indeed, even equipped with the word of God as we may be, we are still feeble. We are still only human. We are still weak and frail in the flesh. And so we must do what all weak people must do. We must cower behind the one who is stronger. We must run to Christ and hide behind him. We must take shelter in his wings. We must hide behind him and pray he do battle for us as he did in those dusty wilderness plains. And he will fight for us. He has fought for us. The cross was the place wherein he smote the final blow to the devil, where he finally wounded our ancient enemy such that he should never recover. There his heel was bruised, but the head of the devil was crushed. Our freedom has made, been made secure by him, and now the devil has no claim over us. We have been at last freed from that curse in him, we have given unto us a greater promise than even that of Eden, not simply the pleasures of the garden, but the pleasures of heaven itself, the pleasures and treasures and gifts of his Father's own love and mercy that he has poured out upon us that we also should be called his sons and that we should be made heirs of the kingdom which is Christ's by birthright and beset by temptation and weakness as we are, Christ is not content to leave us alone in this battle. He has gone to such efforts to secure this kingdom for you, and he shall go through many more to ensure that at last you see the glory of that kingdom. So by all means, take up the book and learn, but also take it up and believe, and hope, and trust in he who has secured for you so great a victory. And at last, when we come to the Paschal Feast, let us come to it with all joy and sincerity, 
knowing that we have at last been cleansed from the curse, that our righteousness and innocence is restored in greater measure than even our forefathers ever knew, that we have indeed been brought into something greater than Eden, and that even today we are privileged to partake of its fruits. Amen. In the name of Jesus, our only hope in this life and the next. Amen.